This morning, I uh, did stuff with the, the, the kids, and I asked them to think of the first... I showed them a photograph, and I asked them to think of the first word that came to mind. And uh, um, we did it with a couple of photographs, and this was the first photograph I showed them. And we had a range of views, uh, whether some people said angry, some people said thoughtful, some people said beard, uh, all kinds of different... I don't know what your word would be. Then I showed them another picture. I showed them this picture. And again, lots of different words came out, kind, friendly, those kind of things. And then I asked them, I said, I'm not going to show you a picture. Uh, well, I am kind of going to show you a picture, but the word, the, what I want you to do is think of the first word that comes into your mind when you think of yourself, you. What's the first word that comes to mind? If you were to describe you, how would you put that in? I'm not going to ask you to give your answer. But I am going to ask you to just think about what's the first word that you would use? One of the kids said finger. <laughs> um, what I suspect is that lots of us would choose quite negative words. And lots of us would choose completely different words to the words others would choose about us. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes it's difficult that we feel other people don't see us as we really are or as we want to be. Or sometimes we realize that we don't see ourselves in perhaps the best light. And sometimes the first word that comes to us to describe ourselves will be a word that others have used of us in our childhood. Maybe a negative word from school playground. It may be a negative word from rows at home that parents or siblings have used. And they've stuck and they've logged and they've become like a tape-recorded message within us. Stupid. Useless. All kinds of different words. And then... I did one more, and I asked them to come up. Well, I'm going to ask you the same, just in your mind. First word, it comes into your head if I was to say, God. It's the first word that would come to describe you. And on the flip chart uh, here are the words that folks shouted out, uh, which may be some of the words that you would have had. They may be that you recognize these. Uh, almighty, rock, loving love, Jesus, powerful, creator, savior, father, king, lord, shepherd. Holden said crazy. I wonder what is the word that you would have. And what I said, and what I say to you tonight That there is a moment, or there are several times when God describes himself, describes his character. And the first word in the description of his character is not on that list. And I'd hazard a guess that many of us have not thought of that word. And I go a little further to say, I think there might be a slight problem that the first word 
to describe the character and nature of God is not necessarily the word that most of us will come up with. Moses, having learnt that God is Yahweh, I am who I am, says, well, tell me what you're like, if you like. And God says, I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And it goes on to talk about anger, and sometimes we've got completely that out of proportion. We're going to come back to that in a few moments because the anger that he talks about is limited. And it's in contrast, marked contrast, to this big description of God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Richard Raw tells the story of um, visiting or meeting a nun who worked in a prison in South America many years ago uh, as a kind of a chaplain. Uh, and uh, she describes to him her first few months working in the prison. And at the beginning of uh, the, the first year, it came towards the first Mother's Day, Mothering Sunday. And the prisoners, the men, it was a male prison, the men in this prison, uh, kept asking her if she could get them a Mother's Day card. And she went out and bought some and made some, and the, the, she couldn't keep up with the demand, so she ended up with boxes and boxes of Mother's Day cards to give to the prisoners to send to their mums. So she logged this, and she thought, okay, Father's Day is coming, and I will make sure that I'm stocked up and ready, and I will have the same number. I will have boxes of cards for the prisoners to send to their fathers. And she tells Richard Raw, not one prisoner asked for a Father's Day card. Because these were men who didn't have good relationships with their fathers. And that was a common theme for the men in prison. And family relationships are really tricky and painful for many of us. Where the model of love that we might have hoped for hasn't been there, or perhaps the model of love has, has gone through bereavement or conflict, or separation. Perhaps we haven't had the family life that we would have hoped for. So when we talk about God as Father, it's a really tricky and painful subject for many of us. Because the word Father, for lots of us, is associated with something that's not what God intended. And I think that there is probably... His, see, one of the problems is one of the biggest descriptions of God is Father, and one of the most painful words in our culture is Father. And I want to ask us to hold, hang on on this, because I want to try and unpack not our experience of parents, 
or being a parent, but what God intends when he uses that word. And to help us do that, I'm going to use Charlie Brown. Violet says to Charlie Brown, my dad has more credit cards than your dad. Charlie Brown says, you're probably right. She says, my dad can hit a golf ball farther than your dad. He says, I know, my dad still cuts across his tee shots. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure that's bad. (laughs) Uh, My dad can bowl better than your dad. He says, I know, my dad still hasn't learned to give that ball any real lift. I also don't know what that means. I've still got the guards up the side. Anyway. She says, my dad can. He says, wait a minute. Don't say any more. Just come with me. I want to show you something. He said, see this? This is my dad's barber shop. He works in there all day long. He has to deal with all sorts of people. Some of them get real, uh, get kind of crabby. But you know what? I can go in there any time. And no matter how busy he is, he'll always stop and give me a big smile. And you know why? Because he likes me. That's why. That's one of the best descriptions of why God calls himself Father. And somehow we need to not judge God. And we do this instinctively and because of the damage that's been done in our lives. We do it instinctively, unconsciously. But somehow we need to move away and not judge God by the fathers we had. But by the parent we would want to be. And not necessarily the parent that we are because some of us our parents, and there's all kinds of pain in that, and mistakes, and difficult relationships. And others of us would want to be parents, have wanted to be parents, perhaps for whatever reason that's not where we are at the moment, and there's all kinds of difficulty in that, and I'm, I'm deeply conscious of that. And yet God is described as a father. So how do we understand that? We've been looking at John's gospel. I've been doing it online for a couple of years since the pandemic started. There's a whole back catalogue, verse by verse, going through it. And today we're getting to this part of John 14. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. And I want to just unpack why and how we think of God as Father, and and to try to move beyond the hurts and preconceptions and difficulties that we have with this. So please, bravely stay with me on this. I know it'd be easy to stay. I can't deal with this. I need to stop. Um, Harder for you to walk out the building, much easier for you guys to turn off, flick forward, and not watch to the end. If you really know me, You'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We're going to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Why is knowing the father by knowing Jesus important? Why is God in heaven called father? And what do we learn about the father heart of God? The context of this 
we looked at a few weeks ago. You can find this all on our YouTube channel or our website. It's easier to find on the YouTube channel than the website, to be honest, um, because there's a whole playlist called Studies in John's Gospel. We talked about the anguish that Jesus felt with Judas and how he talks to us about not letting ourselves be overwhelmed by anguish. And we talked about how um, God understands pain and difficulty and fear and trouble because he himself says in the, in the preceding verses that Jesus was troubled. So when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he's talking about an experience that he is also aware of. And we looked at all of that previously. And then we looked in a last Sunday morning's video at Jesus being the way to life. And then this morning, I uploaded a video for the first part of the verse we're going to do tonight. It says, if you really know me. And I just wanted to explore there the, the, the fear that so many of us have that we don't know God well enough. And it's often rooted in Matthew, where Jesus says uh, that there'll be many people who say, um, who many people who cast out demons who do all kinds of spectacular spiritual things and God says to them, get away from me, I don't even know who you are. And I know that that strikes a chill in the hearts of lots of people. How do I know if I know God? Will he say to me, get away from me, I don't know you. So I've un tried to look at that this morning practically, how, do, how can we be sure that we know God? So that's there for you to look at and we're now going to look at the second part of the verse. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show, show us the God that you're talking about. And Jesus answered, don't you know me? Now, we, we, we have all kinds of understandings about Jesus and the Trinity, and what we need to try and do is get back inside the heads of the first disciples hearing this. Jesus, they say to him, will you show us the Father, the God, the source of life, the God in heaven? And Jesus says, don't you know me? If, if you said to me, uh, Donald, could you just reveal God to, to us? Could you just show God? And I said, <laughs> you'd pick up stones to throw at me because it would be blasphemous. It's an astounding thing. And we're going to see that he repeats it again and again and again. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, the difference between me and the character and nature of God is massive. So, but for Jesus to say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father is radical. He's saying we can see the Jesus. We can see the God of heaven in Jesus. And he continues, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He's repeating this understanding. Jesus is in the God of heaven, the Father, and the God of heaven, the Father, is in Jesus. Now, there is a mystery to all of this that I can't promise we'll ever fully understand. We're trying to join up some lines and dots that the Bible doesn't fully join up. But there are some things that we can 
uh, be sure of in a moment, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. Because this, he says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. This is important. The authority I have is from the Father living in me who is doing his work. And then he repeats it. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And this is what I want to try and unpack for us. And he says, if you don't believe me, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Believe at least. If you can't believe my words, believe on what I've already done among you, the miracles, and also what I'm going to do, the death and resurrection. Now, why is this important? I want to suggest that there are a number of errors that we, that this passage requires us to understand and avoid, and it gives us the information to avoid these errors. The first error is to believe that Jesus wasn't God, to believe that Jesus was a prophet or a good man or some kind of super spiritual human being and in some way different to and separate from God. And Jesus ultimately was crucified for blasphemy because the people who heard him understood that he was declaring himself to be God. So the first error we need to avoid is when he says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, just as John has said at the very beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. He's making it very clear Jesus was God. The second error was to believe, which I don't think many of us would believe, but he just wants to make it clear that at the moment that Jesus is on earth, fully God, it is not that heaven is empty. It's not that people in other parts of the world are praying to God and there's a big sign on heaven saying, gone to earth back in 33 years time. So there is a moment where God is in two places, two forms. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He prays to the Father, modeling for us humanity. But he's also saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So the third uh, heresy that we need to avoid is the concept that there are two gods. And this is the accusation against Christianity that we believe in two or three gods. We're just sticking at the moment for the two at the moment. We'll come back at some other point soon because he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit within a verse or two, and we'll come on to that. But for this moment, we're just talking about the Father and the Son. There are not two gods. There is one God in two forms. Father, Spirit in heaven, the Son with kneecaps, and toenails, who eats and drinks, and can lay his hand on us in such a way that the disciples could feel. I'm not sure they would have, but they could have, if they wanted, have pinched him, and he'd have gone, ow, don't do that. And Thomas says, until I put my fingers, there's a physicality. But that doesn't mean heaven is empty. It means that God is fully in Jesus and fully throughout the cosmos. And the third, fourth error, and I feel the most dangerous error in Western Christianity in this area for us is the belief that the Father and the Son are different in characteristics. 
That Jesus is loving and kind, but the Father is angry and has to be persuaded by the Son to forgive us. And those of you who, who, who study some of the contemporary theological debates will know that this is rattles around. But it, it under, one of the problems that occurs is when we start to think that the Father and the Son are different in personality and character. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. He is saying, if you want to know what God is like, here I am, this is me. It's not that uh, I'm, nice, I'm the nice guy, I'm the good cop, and the Father in heaven is the bad cop. He's explicitly saying the opposite to that. So the error that we need to avoid is perceiving God to be less loving than Jesus. So why do we use this phrase, Father? Why, when it's such a difficult and problematic word for so much of our world, where Satan has come in and just damaged the most important concept of God? Why do we use it? Why does Jesus use this word, Father? Firstly, we need to understand that when Jesus uses it, he doesn't mean that God in heaven is a different uh, personality to himself. That's why he keeps on stressing, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, if, if, uh, my, I, I don't think any of my sons are here tonight. Joel's not here, no. But it, you, you, Joel wouldn't say, if you've seen me, you've seen Dad. He wouldn't say that. Because we're different. We're different personalities. So when Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's, saying, he's using it in a different understanding. What he, he means is that he, Father and Son, is the same species. If you read the Narnia books, you'll know that the, the human beings are called sons and daughters of Eve and Adam. He means by being, using the phrase son that he comes from. Jesus is not created by God. He's come from God. If you know the great... Uh, Carol. Is it, come all you faithful? Begotten, not created. He's come from God. He's not made by God. He's separated from, but not different to. Here's the mystery. He's fully God and fully man. He's tired. He weeps. He's contained within one body, but he's also the same as the Father in heaven. He prays. And yet he knows all things. But the title Father is also important for us. It's not just trying to unpack who Jesus is. It's really important for our understanding. And again, we need to go back to how we would want to be the best kind of parents. Fundamentally, when we think of God as Father, we're acknowledging that he is the source of our life. He has given us breath. Your breath is not your right. It is a gift from God. Your life and heartbeat today and tomorrow is a gift from the God. Were God not to exist, there would be no life. Nobody can create life out of non-life. All the science in the world cannot take something that is completely dead and make it living. The only way you can create life is to have another life that creates it. And God is the source of our life. 
But the second thing that's really important to understand the concept of God as Father is that he's unconditionally loving. And we have a concept that God loves us if we're good, and that is not the concept of fatherhood. If you are, when a child is born, a baby is born, they smell, they scream, and they look the same as everybody else's. They do. You show me a photo of a newborn baby, I haven't a clue whether it's mine or yours. <laughs> they make an awful noise through the night. They, keep, they deprive you of sleep. They don't even smile for a few months. They can't do anything. They don't cook you lunch. They don't give you a Father's Day present. They don't do anything. They don't pass exams. They don't play football. They're just this screaming thing. And you know what? You cannot help but love it. Whether it's yours or not. You see this baby and you go, I love this thing. Not because of what it does. Because it is. Because God has created in us this sense that we will love unconditionally a child. Now I know that some of us, many of us will have had parents that did not love us unconditionally. And that's deeply painful. But that is not the intention nor the nature of God. And I know that there are lots of stories in our church, very, very painful stories, of children that have not made good choices, that have been rebellious or hurtful or angry, and have caused deep, deep pain. But I also know that there are parents in this church who've just kept on loving, have hung in there. And that is what God is like. He loves us because he made us, not because of whether we're good or bad. And he's invested in our caring. He, what I mean by invested is it, 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 he feels it. He, 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 he just wants to protect us. Because that's what happens when you're given that baby that smells and makes a horrible noise and doesn't even smile. You just want to look after it. You just want to protect it. You want to do everything you can in your whole being to make sure that child is okay. And that is how God is with us. All he wants is to check that we're okay. And there is no limit to what he will do to save us. No limit to what he will do to rescue us. No point at which he says, you've gone too far, that's it, I'm finished with you. No limit. God does not love us because he has to. God loves us because he wants to. God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. 
And so finally, what do we learn about this father from Jesus? We're trying to understand why Jesus calls him the father, and it's to teach us something. And then he says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. In other words, the way Jesus behaves tells us about the nature of God. And just want to just quickly repack cap that, and then Gain is going to come and lead us in responding together. Do you remember how Jesus, and this most of this comes from John already, you remember how Jesus looks over the, the crowd that are hungry, and it says that he had compassion for them, and he fed them, and he weeps over Jerusalem. And one thing we can say of Jesus is that he's moved by people. He weeps over Lazarus's death. He is compassionate. So this description of God to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to love, abounding in love and faithful. This is not somebody different to Jesus. This is a description of Jesus. And Jesus reveals it. Jesus shows it. Jesus proves it. And whatever we feel, whatever mistakes and rubbish we've got in into and whatever things that have happened to us he weeps and he's compassionate and you know we have been created with emotions and feelings and we're moved when we see things and and sometimes people have a perception that God is different to that we're made in his image he he weeps over the state of our world and our lives because the first word he wants you to know about him, forget everything else you think about God, he is compassionate. That's, he says, look, I want you to know, this is who I am, I'm going to come. And still, in the Old Testament, they get all this perception of God as, and he says, well, I'm going to have to come and show you. And again and again, the religious and the Pharisees, they say, you, you, you need to be punishing people. You need to be rebuking people. You Stop eating with uh, the, 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 the sinners and the tax collectors. They mutter. What's the insult they call him? Friend of sinners. This is who God is. The friend of sin is compassionate. He is merciful. When a woman's caught in adultery and, and they're going to throw stones to stone her, he says, neither do I condemn you. This is the God who is troubled by rejection. We talked about that with Judas and how he feels the pain of Judas betraying him. This is our God who, who, who feels things. And because he feels things, yes, he gets angry. And all of us will know that you can love someone and be angry with them at the same time. In fact, sometimes the more you love them, the more angry you can get with them. They're not opposite emotions. He cares about the stupid things we do and the way we hurt each other. He cares about the injustices in the world. He cares about Ukraine. It makes him angry. Why does it make him angry? Because he's compassionate. They're part of the same deal, aren't they? You can't be compassionate without being angry about the stuff that's wrong in the world. But it blows their mind that he washes their feet because he's servant-hearted and he loves them without limits and that's where the cross becomes the defining moment where we understand fully who God is and the revelation to Moses is fully shown. Who are you, God? I am compassionate and gracious. See the nails. See the marks. This is me. 
This is God. Forget how other people have treated us. Forget what religion has done to the perception and image of God. This is God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is God weeping for our sin. My dad likes to come down to the barber shop. Likes me to come down to the barber shop and wait for him, says Charlie Brown, outside the barber shop. No matter how busy he is, even if the shop is full of customers, he always stops to say hi to me. I sit here on the bench until six o'clock, and when he's through, then we ride home together. It really doesn't take much to make a dad happy. He just wants to be in relationship with us. Have a look at the video I posted this morning about what it means to know God. He doesn't need a reason to love us. He already loves us. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He already loves us. And as the father is waiting at the gate for the son to, ru- to return home, and as the prodigal son throws himself at the mercy of his father and says, I will come and be your slave, and he lifts him up and says, we're going to celebrate. So God is longing for us to return to him. Francis Chan says, the God of the universe, the creator of nitrogen and pine needles, galaxies and E minor, loves us with a radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And he says, what is our typical response? We go to church, sing songs, and try not to swear. We are going to sing some songs, but we're going to try and enter into God's presence and allow his father care and love, his unconditional love, waiting for us to return to him, waiting for us to say, God, forgive me, I need you. As Gaynor and the band rejoin me, some questions on the screen. Is our understanding of God, firstly, compassionate? Is that how we define him? Tell me what God's like. Maybe we'd use the phrase loving. Maybe we'd use other words of fire. It's great, but the concept needs to be in there. And if we find ourselves saying the first thing we want to say about God is he's angry, we need to meet Jesus. Second thing, question, where might our experiences of human love mislead us about God's love? Where is the difficulties that we've experienced in relationship distorting how we feel about the word Father? So how we changed by God being above all compassionate? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come among us, 
to reveal afresh and again your love. Where religion or difficult relationships have hidden your father nature from us. Will you come now and reveal your love? Thank you that you've called us to follow you, to know you, and to love you. We thank you that you welcome us, though we have been lost. Who are we that the highest king should welcome us? I was lost, but he brought me in.